Hi, welcome to Gomology, a podcast about menswear and clothing, old and new, from a perspective of buying, wearing, evaluating, appreciating and collecting. The idea is to provide a non-fashion view of what men might wear if they knew more about it and the stories that go with. There will likely be no mention of tailoring or pocket squares. This is episode two of season zero, and in this episode, my co-host is my friend Daki from Brighton. We talk about the various ways we look at the value of clothes and heritage, vintage and reproduction clothing. Is there a valid point to reproducing items that are still widely available? Welcome to a uh, Instagram live chat with me, um, Nick Johannesson from Norway, aka Well-Dressed Dad, and uh, I'd like to welcome Ducky from Hello. Brighton, UK, aka Rugged Frills. <laughs> the best and most uh, hated and loved name on Instagram, I reckon. Really? <laughs> I had a lot of very angry comments when I changed my name, so yeah, that's a separate conversation altogether. Okay, but you like your rugged and you like your frills. And exactly. brings us into uh, what we uh, thought we'd talk about today. Yeah. Uh, starting off this half hour or so chat with uh, what we value in clothing. And I know you have a few ideas to kick us off there. Yeah, well, we, we, we have, well, we've been, we've been chatting uh, for many years by now, Nick, which is uh, a, a bit strange, but... Um, yeah, so um, the conversation we had about this uh, previously was about sort of talking through the, the list of things that we um, enjoy or care about when we uh, look at clothing and clothing brands, I guess. And so some of the values uh, that we sort of uh, think about. And so we were going to maybe talk through that list. I put together my list and we can sort of go through that. How does that sound? Because we are definitely determined garment gazers. Always on the we're, lookout for that next shiny thing. Yeah. Well, we're, we're nerds that, and we like to formalize things, right? We have to be very geeky. We have to have a list in the box ticking exercise for everything. Like, you can't just uh, have a feeling about liking something. You have to justify it rationally. That, that's the right way of doing it. It, it certainly is, and it has to, um, has to be a little bit hard to find because you can't go out to the high street, yeah. drop by the regular shops and sort of just browse through stuff. Yeah. It has to be something specific, researched, and hours spent. <laughs> yeah, you have to. Yeah, it, it has to be genuinely uncomfortable for both you and your family members. You have to, uh, you know, annoy them for months about that one thing you're going to buy eventually. Yeah. So, exactly. Should we yeah, get into it? Searches on eBay, etc. You're just waiting for the day that mail comes in and says, "Ping." <laughs> And then you drop me a message on Instagram saying, look what's arrived. And then I can celebrate with you and everyone else around you probably just rolls their eyes. Exactly. Yeah. So when it comes to value, I mean, what, what are we looking for? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think value is quite a broad term and I think it's uh, flung about a fair bit. But I mean, the sorts of things that I think about with value, I guess, would be... Um, quality is an obvious thing um but the other thing is sort of things like timelessness you know so um will you be able to wear it this year and next year or is it just one of those things that you know is really cool right now and no one will ever care about it in a couple of months time um and then the final thing i guess is about the sort of versatility as well and that's something where if you like me don't work in an environment where you can just wear whatever you want on any given day 
and you mostly can wear, you know, your casual stuff on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, the stuff that you have really has, you, ha you have to be able to wear it quite regularly. You know, it can't be too niche. Uh, and if it is niche, then you have to, you know, then it has to be really, really special. So that, those are the sorts of things that I think about when I think about value. Yeah. I, I work a terrific amount from home, so I don't even have, even have the excuse that, oh, I'll wear this to work most days. Right. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, and so I mean, would you say rarity is that a is that a value? Um, that's a good point. I mean, I think to some extent it is. Um, rarity comes into it, especially with vintage stuff, right? Um, and if it comes into it for me personally, and I can understand why it wouldn't come into it for a lot of people. Um, it comes into me. It uh, it comes into the equation for me because there are certain things that I've heard about or seen that sort of have a mythical status or that I just want to sort of own for a while and I'll go after it and, you know, try to get it. So things like, you know, a Browns Beach vest is one of those where I was looking for a vintage one for ages before I found one. That was right. sort of in good nick and that was worth buying. Um, so, you know, if those kind of things would definitely matter to me. I can see why the average consumer, though, I mean, rarely comes into it for them maybe in a different way in terms of branding and things, things like that. Uh, but I think the vintage, you know, world is a bit different where rarity probably does play a bigger part uh, than it possibly should even, you know. But there is a certain sense of one-upmanship, isn't there? I mean, everyone wants to be the first guy on Instagram to have that thing. But yeah. That, that can sort of work both ways as well because you see something a lot on Instagram, say, and you think, ooh, I'd like that. Mm. Or it can flip completely the opposite way and you think, ah, everyone's got it. And uh, yeah. <laughs> not too keen. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I think you saw it with, um, if I had to, something like um, Red Wing for me. I think that happened to it in a way because originally it was sort of like the nerds knew about Red Wing. Uh, and then the same nerds, when they saw that, um, you know, John Lewis stopped it, some of that disappeared you know, attraction disappeared from it because it's like, oh, it's every man now. Like, you know, it's not sort of that secret society thing. And then a lot of people maybe aren't as into it anymore, um, which is kind of, a, I mean, personally, I find that a bit strange, but I can also understand it. You know, if it's the thing that you thought was sort of a cult state of thing. Um, I think I have more of an issue with stuff like that if it means that the product is watered down. But I don't think that's the case with Red Bull. I think the quality is just as good as Red Bull, really. It's just that they went from being a hipster item to an everyman item. This is it. So, uh, is it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, rarity, not such much, so much of a, a thing. Um, I tend to look a lot at what things that clothes are made of. Mm -hmm. Composition of the fabric. Yeah. Uh, very much a guy that appreciates natural fabrics. So yes. it's linen, cotton, hemp, wool. I'm all in. Um, then you have the sort of modern ones, the tensels, the viscose, various yeah, yeah. Um, pulp, bamboo, whatever. Then I'm getting a bit sceptical. And once you're in the territory of nylon and polyester, I'm way gone. Yeah. But I do notice that some of the sort of brands we normally be looking at mm -hmm. actually are quite open to using unnatural fibres. But for me, that is a definite point of... Uh... Do, do you care, though, like, what 
what garment, as in like, you know, something like socks versus your jumper, like? Socks, I will accept mm. synthetic fibers because yeah. a pair of wool socks or a pair of lovely cashmere socks, yeah. on, I mean, they last an hour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. You put your boots on and they've already gone. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, cashmere socks with a day's use, you can't justify, but add some synthetics in there and that has purpose. I mean, there's a utility value in adding them. Yeah. But just making fabrics with synthetic fibers because it's cheaper or available or whatever. Yeah. I support that. Hence, of course, why I'm such a big Harris Tweed fan because yeah. it's all straight up wool. Yeah. Cotton has been a bit more problematic, but the, there is more and more organic cotton now, which does help. Uh, yeah, but see, this is when it, so this is the other sort of things that we talked about, because like, apart from just value, you have sort of the ethics and the sustainability bit of it. I think there's a real issue. I mean, obviously, there's a real issue with that. But, you know, it's sort of those things where certain, um, certain words have become just as much of a sort of a hot thing to say about your brand uh, having. So like organic cotton for me is one of them, where generally speaking, it's good. Um, but is it entirely always better than non-organic cotton? Well, there's the issue of like the additional water that you might be using and there's other things as well. So it's, it's just not as clear cut. And if you ultimately really just wanted to talk about, well, what's better than that normal cotton, you could go to organic cotton, but you could even say linen or hemp. And I guess there, there, there's the issue with them where, you know, the communication to the customer might break down because it's like, well, I don't want hemp t-shirts. I think, strictly speaking, organic cotton will be better than regular cotton mm -hmm. if we're being told the truth. Right. Now, from, from my own knowledge of farming and organic farming, I know it takes a hell of a lot of years for a piece of land to be certified as organic after it's been used as regular pesticide-ridden, fertilised field. But you saw when organic cotton sort of became a thing, mm -hmm. it was amazingly how quick production was ramped up which makes me think that is it really all organic strictly speaking right okay yeah 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 not to say it's not but i i'm a little skeptical um you saw the similar thing with uh, linen now whereas was it last year linen became super popular right suddenly linen everywhere yeah How yeah how did they manage to ramp up production of linen that quick uh and of course, we haven't seen the same with hemp yet because hemp is still very much small scale and hard to get permission to grow, I think. Yeah. Um, hopefully we'll see more hemp because that is probably the most sustainable and environmentally friendly of the fibres. Yeah. Uh, even linen now, you have good linen and bad linen, uh, depending on how they actually get the fibres out of it. Okay. So they call it dirty linen, um, which really isn't that environmentally friendly at all. Okay. So that's the process um, itself? That sort of is environmentally unfriendly? Extracting, extracting the fibres from the black stems. Okay. So, uh, I mean, as a consumer, it's really tricky because yeah. do you have to sit down and do a shitload of research before you can sort of convince yourself that, yeah, black shirt, is it okay? Yeah. I think probably wool is still absolutely the most sustainable and environmentally friendly of of the fibers. 
but then that's under attack from the vegetarians and the vegans. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I mean, for the vegans, I mean, they like their vegan leather, mm -hmm. which is just plastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it all back again. Yeah, you're back sort of to that exactly. I mean, there's there's so many issues where I mean, you, um, the other one you mentioned is bamboo, and you know that was one where for probably about a year, every especially in Brighton, because you know we're full of hipsters, uh, even more hipster than me, if you can imagine. Uh, and you know, every single you know cool interior shop had at least five items of bamboo in there, including socks, and everyone felt like you know one was the same as the other, and then you know, oh, it's great for you, it's bamboo, it's good for the environment, blah blah. blah. And it's obviously not the case. I mean, it's basically as plastic as any other sort of synthetic material. It's, it's just pumped uh, cellulose, so it's the same viscose right. as used in others, and all the talk of antibacterial properties and whatnot. Nah, not really. Yeah. But and that's what? the thing, you know, you don't want to do a PhD every time you, or you want to buy socks. You just want to be able to trust the company or, you know, you know rather than being sort of... Uh, ideally, ideally, we would, yeah, because... Uh, I mean, the amount of time we'd spend researching would be counted by the amount of time they spend thinking up clever new ways of presenting it and to convince us it's better. Yeah. Moving on. Sure. Uh, further values. Mm. Um, heritage, uh, where things come from, how they're made. Yeah. So you and Sean spoke about this, didn't you, in the previous conversation, which was really good. I really enjoyed that. So it's like the sort of the branding heritage bit of it and how certain companies are not having maybe majored on it and potentially that's a missed opportunity for them. Um, but how do you feel about sort of the, I think especially in heritage, I think there, there's a sort of like the customer expects to be told the story. Uh, and over time, it's almost become like compulsory to have a good story. Otherwise, you know, it's like that, that, that's half the value. You, you gotta, you gotta tell me some, you know, I think the example that Sean gave was something about unicorn nuns making something or whatever it was. <laughs> well, I think that's part of, I mean, if it is a heritage garment, it will necessarily have been around for a good few years and there must be some sort of story behind it. Might not be a very good story, might not be a very full and uh, colourful story. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, that comes down to the storyteller who's trying to sell it to you, I think. Um, and we also have examples where, where the marketing story has sort of replaced the real story. So yes. Take uh, Ventile. Uh, for many years now, Ventile has really been using Nigel Cable's uh, marketing material from 2003 as their official story, which mm -hmm. is kind of bizarre, but... Um, but it is interesting when uh, take uh, you probably come across uh, Brian and uh, Wright stuff. Yes, yeah. He does a very narrow range of items, but really backs it up with historic advertising and material. Which, yeah. though his stuff is now made from scratch in Japan, you can see exactly where it is coming from. Yeah, which gives it. An automatic story. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that's maybe one of the things is that, well, I don't know, to some extent, I'd love to know more about this because I don't always have, I mean, I, you know, I pick up things from people or read online, but um, I'd love to know to what extent the retailers have driven the need for some of this. You know, it's like, 
what's the two line sentence that I can tell my customer when I present them with this pair of jeans, they'll seal the deal. That's, you know what I mean? I think there's sort of like, almost like memefied selling tactics. Or, you know, it's like, oh, but you know, that's Ugandan cotton or, you know, that, that's uh, whatever uh, it is, you know, so it's... I think jeans is a very good example there because um, if you rewound back five, 10 years, there were a lot fewer companies trying to sell you these jeans. And it was a lot easier for them to come up with, say, a unique selling point yeah but so much water has passed under the bridge since then that someone introducing a pair of jeans today it's really hard to come up with some sort of unique story yeah you can't, you can't just say oh it's uh, five po five pocket jeans uh selvage denim uh we've made our own design mm -hmm. and then you look at them and yep they're five pockets <laughs> it's selvage denim and well they look just like everyone else's really but yeah What's and the, because yeah. I've been buying it for 10 years now, I actually have 15 really, really nice pairs of very, very similar looking jeans. That's uh, the thing. So, so where's the unique selling point there? Uh, but I think or, that's one of the issues with all of this is that, you know, I mean, this is, this is obviously my perspective, but I think one of the things is, you know, you start, we, started, we all started at, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, whatever it was that, you know, this was sort of a small thing. And we've incrementally asked for better and better things or what seemed better and better. And there's sort of been that race to come up with those unique selling things, you know, and ideas. And in some cases, it's resulted in amazing quality stuff at really, you know, good value. Um, other times, it's just not resulted in as good of a, a product for me personally. So an example to stick with jeans would be something like, you know, these insane 28 ounce jeans or whatever it is, you know, that we're all we're perfectly happy to just have a nice selfish Japanese pair of jeans that were maybe 12 or 14 ounces, you know, 10 years ago. But now it's just like, it's become a spectacle, you know, the guy in the shop has to be able to say, well, they can stand by themselves and they'll pick yeah. them off the shelf and, you know, they'll do that thing in their arms and they'll make the stand and everyone sort of looks in like a freak show amazement sort of uh, scenario. And it's, well, is that desirable? I don't know. Oh, it's going to take you six months to break them in and they may break you. But, Whoa! But, well, that's 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 a whole other conversation. Is you know these people then that take pride in bleeding from you know the back of their legs to because they're broken in some horrible piece of denim. And it's just, that, I, I don't get any joy from that personally. I mean, you know, I have to admit I like a, a nice heavyweight denim. Nineteen ounces is around where I think uh, it's works well for me. Is that the car? Okay. But uh, in the summer, though, I mean, I don't know, Norway, you don't have summers, but let's assume that you have a summer. What would you wear? Well, I tend not to maybe wear so much denim in the summer. Uh, wear linen or cotton or... Yeah. So once it gets a bit colder, I mean, good heavyweight denim is excellent for cycling in the cold. Yeah, yeah. But I was thinking, uh, say, 10 years ago, Japanese denim was all the thing. And then Japanese denim has got better over time. I mean, more and more interesting which is basically more and more flawed, more slubby, heavier. Um, but others have come in since then. I mean, the Italian denim is the sort of yes. popular thing now, where it's really environmentally friendly. It's utterly perfect. No character at all, the search. Yeah. We've also got British denim coming in, which I think is really interesting, because then you have the opportunity of having a pair of jeans made to a more British design in Britain, from British denim, which has a great story. So uh, I know you're a big fan of your local denim makers. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, so Dawson Denham. Um, actually, the first time I bought uh, Dawson Denham was in Germany because <laughs> they didn't have a shop. <laughs> so talking about sustainability, I flew all the way to Germany to get my first pair. Um, but yeah, so that, that, I mean, they're like one of those brands that, you know, it's, it's great to see just a small scale operation, you know, and it's, I guess this is one of the things is like, I don't know to what extent it is possible to scale some of the things that we value, you know, because with them, for example, you can go into their workshop and they literally have one room for making the denim on their old machines from the fifties or whatever. That's one room. And the other room is for selling. And that's like one third of the space or maybe even less. Um, yeah. If you wanted to scale up and do that on a sort of massive level, I just don't think it's possible, you know, because it's 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 one of those things where it, it becomes very very cumbersome. So I I think it's well personally that's why I think it's amazing. You know, that's the bit that I appreciate is in terms of linking this back to the story bit of it and what were the sort of like the emotional connections and stuff. You know, it's, I always like brands like Tender and Dawson Denim and you know there's um work even community clothing where there's like a clear connection between the people that produce it sell it and i can pretty much trust well just then the decision is do i feel like i can trust the person that i um, have that direct relationship with as a customer um that that to me is way more appealing than even a big um big sort of desirable brand from japan although i like those brands as well but i think there's some for me personally there's a different connection for me when i can go there and actually see it produced. I think that's pretty special. And talk to the people making it. And yeah. I mean, uh, say if I have something I'd like to say to William at Tender, I'll just send him a message on Instagram, exactly. which means it's <laughs> the connection is so much stronger there. Not had much response from Patrick Grant, though, but then again, I suppose he's... But that, that's because you're stalking him, Nick. That's because <laughs> the questions are sending, as am I. You know, we all just want to be Patrick Grant when we grow up. But, um, yeah, I definitely think when they're small and approachable and you get to know people, yeah. I mean, I have the same thing with uh, with William Lennon Boots. Because yeah. It's so small and you can just talk to them. And that's like a family-run business for generations? It's been a family-run business for 120-odd years. Yeah, I mean, amazing. Like, so, think about how much a big company would pay to be able to say that. Yeah. It'll be all over, you know. All over that, that makes me think of something else because I've often been, you can easily get into such a, a mental knot trying to think about these things. Mm. But say you have a pair of William Lennon boots made in the same factory in Stony Middleton as they've always been, uh, using the old machines that have been there for 120 years. Yeah. Say you asked a factory in China to make the same boots, basically a copy the same yeah would they be the same and likewise you have brands like um real mccoy's who will make you a perfect tool room replica of an m65 jacket the first version provided you pay them handsomely yeah what what do we think about this It's it's so tricky, and this is this is the best bit about it, right? I think it's fine to be a bit unsure about all of this, because um, I yeah I think it's a really good question. Um, I think you know when we spoke about it before. I mean, one of the things about it is for me is there's a there's a difference for me between what uh, an homage is and what a reproduction and or copy is. Um, personally, I I tend to be much more interested in homages 
than copies or reproductions. And so what I mean by homage is, you know, something that sort of roughly is inspired or sort of pays homage to the original, but doesn't necessarily reproduce it one for one. They might, you know, make the pocket slightly different or they might add a hood or, you know, do something with the fabric, just something exactly sort of bring it a different spin on it. Whereas a reproduction for me, and this is, I think, what the, a lot of the Japanese brands, obviously this is not the only thing they do, but I think this is where a lot of the Japanese brands are uh, focused and amazing at, is just they'll just do the perfect replica one for one of whatever you want, uh, and it comes through. And um, it depends. Again, we go back to the rarity point. I think uh, a copy or reproduction is really valuable when you can't find the original vintage piece. But something like an M65, I mean, really, for me at this point, it, it's not far off landfill because I, I don't see the need to produce any more M65s. When there's, you know, I can go to my local vintage shop and there's 50 of them for you know, 50 pounds. I just yeah. don't see the need for that personally. Right. Um, so I think that, that that's sort of the starting point. And then in terms of, I don't know, what do you think about when you then have sort of more value propositions that come in? Because this is the, one of the issues where if you want to just do a perfect replica, uh, depending on the level of detail that you want, you know, the Chinese brands have come in now and they can produce that at a tenth of the price. And that really complicates it for me as well. So I don't know, you have more experience with that. It's, uh, it's interesting you mentioned that now because I was just thinking while you were talking now, the brown beets, brown beach vests, yeah. jackets, made in that special buccal fabric, whatever. They used to be, you had the vintage ones and then the Japanese were reproducing them. I know RRL, Ralph Lauren, has been making them. And now there is at least one Chinese brand making them, and they hardly charge anything for them. Yeah. They've come full way, uh, and something you might have paid five, six, seven hundred pounds for as a perfect vintage is now down to, I think it's about a hundred pounds. Even less. I've seen them for less, at least. Uh, okay. <laughs> Which is probably what they're worth because they're still making a profit, yeah, and including shipping, I think. So, uh, yeah, but somewhere along the way, I think something was lost, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think, and you know, if we were to look at the sort of the areas that we spoke about before, you know, in terms of value, ethics, sustainability, in terms of you know, maybe things about the visual aspect and emotional uh, sort of links, connections, you know, you can see the bits that might be different for a pure um, price-driven reproduction company and then a, you know, local or just, you know, very intentional and focused design work that might happen from an artisan somewhere. Um, having said all that as well, I mean, I do think it's, it's obviously down to the individual as well. It depends on, you know, what's your situation. I mean, I was never going to buy any of this stuff when I was just graduating and looking for a job, you know, so there has to be a balance there. And I think one of the risks with all of this is partly with Instagram is, you know, we only ever see the very, very pinnacle of everything. And, you know, we have to recognize there's value at all sorts of price points. Uh, and, you know, going back to the Red Wing stuff that we talked about, you know, there, there'll be people that sort of think that they're basically Red Wing by now is garbage because, you know, unless you have a pair of whites, surely it shouldn't even go on your feet, you know? And that's, I mean, that's, Personally, I think that's nonsense. You know, there's has to be value propositions at all price points. Well, that's something I've noticed recently is that uh, the sort of price point of boots that um, the guys are flexing on Instagram, yeah, just going 
Whereas well, Red Wings a few years ago were sort of, wow, Red Wings. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, you're talking. That's entry level, not even. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's second-hand car money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can't, mean, can't say a pair of boots is worth a car, really. Because, you know, at this point, it's when you said sort of flexing, because I think this is the thing is a lot of these um, people would equally sort of, you know, roll their eyes at the stuff that maybe the streetwear kids are wearing, you know, where like prices have gone crazy, you know, sort of way over the top. And, you know, you could have like, what is it, the Jordan M&Ms or whatever, they're like $40,000 or whatever that they go for. So, you know, but at the same time, it is... At the, at the sort of at the level that this is actually a very niche product, it's not far off. You know, if we have to sort of extrapolate where we are with some of these products and then go, well, you know, some of the other stuff that's just there's just there are that many more people that just want that product. That's right. not really real difference. Sometimes there isn't much difference in the height. I think one of the differences between where sort of stuff we're into versus streetwear is that we don't have that resale culture. Because in the streetwear, it's all about winning the lottery, so you're allowed to buy. Yeah, it. Yeah, so exactly. Which you can then immediately sell on for twice the money, and the next guy sells them on for twice the money or whatever. Yeah. You've got your living room is full of box fresh sneakers, which is probably your life investment because at the moment it's worth a grand or it's yeah. worth a million pounds. Or, uh, I mean, because if you say that, then you think about the vintage market, though, right? So re uh, heritage, sort of contemporary stuff, you're right. There isn't sort of an immediate, if you buy it now, you can, you know, if you buy Mr. Freedom now, you can sell it for 50% more in a month's time. But vintage stuff is, is littered with that. You know, there's like Levi's uh, 70s um, jeans. I mean, you see them go for thousands of pounds. And there is, you know, objectively, to the extent that you can talk about objectively, of course, they're not worth that, you know. It's still a pair of jeans, and the Japanese company that does these ridiculously good reproductions of it will charge you a tenth, uh, if not less than that, right? Yeah. So this this is the thing: is like it is when when it goes into the market like that, you know. I think especially with vintage, you see things that are just not very good value propositions. But don't you think with vintage, we have a lot more knowledge about the rarity and the value of it? <laughs> so you're you're unlikely to pop down your local vintage emporium and find something and think, ooh, I can flip this for 10 times the money. I, th I, think, I think that is a more savvy market, whereas it the kids selling sneakers, it's just, I mean, it's like cryptocurrency or whatever. It gambling. Is. It's gambling, basically. <laughs> you're rolling the dice. Well, it seems like it's worth it. I might join them. Um, no, I think you're right. I mean, to some extent, I mean, the vintage market has been established for many years, right? So you can sort of gauge to what extent something might stay a certain price. Um, so I think that's probably true. But I think there is something about that sort of approach where maybe it's the, the people that look at us and want to get into some of this, but can't necessarily access the information because some of this is still not, it's not like formalized or written down, there isn't a handbook or whatever. And then all the sort of, I don't think it's a particularly accessible world. You know, I think there's a lot of, uh, whether intentional or not, there's a lot of snobbery as well and things like that, or secrecy about, you know, this is where my stuff comes from, but I'm never going to tell you my source. And, you know, so uh, I, I, I can see a lot of parallels between us and, uh, you know, the streetwear kids. It's, it's, I don't think it's that different, actually. I think you took us into dangerous water there. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Because uh, 
course, there's no snobbery. No, right. No one wants well, to have that pair of Grail boots or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Nick, you know, we're we're not here to upset people. This is this is no. not what we do. <laughs> that one-off denim jacket. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All of that stuff is worth it for sure. It is. Especially like, you know, okay, like, let's talk about um, Visbin is a good example, right? Like, that's probably the most loved, loved and hated brand at the same time. And I think one of the parallels there to the vintage world is like, it's sort of the, there's an extent to which the rarity is uh, natural, because, you know, it's really difficult to produce certain things at a certain scale, like we talked about. But then there's also sort of imposed rarity where the producer, and this is, I don't think that different. It's probably why something like Visbin probably sits in the middle between heritage world and the streetwear world, where the producer knows that he can sell 200 pairs of shoes, but he'll just make 10. And then, you know, next time he'll make 20. But in the meantime, the first 10 that sold, it will have a resale value of whatever. And then you slowly climb that ladder. And it's, it's a very well-established, you know, market. I mean, Rolex do exactly the same. They constrain supply. And so, so, you know, it's, it, it, it all works that way. I'm, so, I mean, you, I'd like to know what you think about stuff like uh, VisVim and that sort of. You know, I am aware of VisVim and I see some of their stuff, but for me, it's, capital is a bit the same. I see stuff that capital make that is brilliant. Yeah. And I see the 95% of the rest of it, which is just, and, Visvim where I think I'm probably just too old or maybe not cool enough or okay. I don't get it. And then when you see the price of it in addition, it's just, wow. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the, the, the one thing is, I don't know if you've, have you been to Japan and have you looked at it there? Because this is what everyone always tells me is go to Japan and buy capital in Japan. Stop looking at it here. So I don't know. Yeah, well, I think, I think capital is a brand that, um, the, the stockists in Europe don't do them any favours because mm -hmm. they pick and choose what they want from a range that is, frankly, massive. Yeah. If you go online and see all the stuff Capital makes, it's just insane. Uh, but what you see in the European stockists is just a small, tiny part, and some of it is really strange, really expensive. But mm -hmm. if you take the time to look in the Japanese site or look at their lookbooks, and it sort of makes sense in the setting presented. I yeah. think it's great. Yeah. But then you get like some random leopard polyester jacket and you just think, why, why is that next to the, uh, you know, hand dyed indigo yeah. <laughs> patchwork thing? And it's like, I, I don't get it. So yeah, you're right. That's but the I mean, presumably the thing that I've heard is that um, we, this is partly, you know, the, the impact of the retailers, but they, you know, in Japan, they have the same relationship with a lot of the British or American brands, because again, it's hand-selected um, and brought over on the retail, and the price is also, you know, three times higher as a result. Yeah. And so this is the thing is like capital, you know, in Japan sells for nearly half the price for, I'm told, as you know, you see it here. And, you know, at that point, you think, oh, that is quite different because, you know, you're not paying, you know, 500 pounds for, you know, ring coat or whatever. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, yeah. We can sort of boil it down to, we always want what we can't get. So yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of the troll obscure auction sites in Japan for, and the Japanese are doing the same with stuff from Britain and America. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So what do you think about the sort of, cause you know, um, things like, or brands like Visible and Capital, I think a good example of where, 
if those brands were produced to bring it back to your previous point about like in China, mm. even if it was sort of objectively one and the same, would they do as well? Uh, would it be as accepted in the sort of heritage world? Do you think? Well, I think that's interesting because I believe, and I'm not sure about this, but I believe Capital is made in Japan. I think so, yeah. It's made in China. Some of it is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I have heard them being criticised for that. But then again, I mean, the quality is iPhone quality, so yeah. But they can't brag about it being made in Japan, which obviously gives certain other ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I feel by heavy sibling and not now. <laughs> I want a solution to my conundrum, Nick. I thought you were going to supply me the, the answer. It is a conundrum. It certainly is. I mean, there's something about the sort of, we, we do mystify the production in Japan, don't we? I mean, there's genuinely stuff that is good quality and better than you probably find in a lot of places to some extent. But it's kind of like Swiss-made watches, you know, for a while. Unless it was Swiss-made, you wouldn't touch it. But then everyone realized that actually... Plenty of other countries can make really nice watches as well. It's like British-made shoes. It's like, I mean, every, everyone wants to make a certain mystique around around it. That it, they're the ones who can do it right. They're the ones who have the heritage. It's their right to make them. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it links back to maybe the stuff about you know you don't want to do a PhD every time you're buying something. So you have these like shortcuts to quality, not quality. Uh, and you think probably things like, you know, environmental standards must be higher in Japan on average than in China. So if I care about that, then that's a tick. And, you know, in terms of the ethics of production, I'm assuming workforce is treated better. I mean, these are a lot of assumptions and that's probably what people in the back of their heads have. Yeah. But then the truth is sometimes that's probably not the case at all. And certainly when you look at um, certain production in America and the UK, I, I, do, I do think sometimes, you know, if some of these people were just to be more explicit about that the cloth is produced in Japan or the production is in Japan, they might do better for it, which is, I don't know how I feel about that, you know? And equally for in China, you know, it doesn't mean that you're making crap stuff. <laughs> it's just, you know, yeah. basically the underlying assumption that a lot of people take. A lot of the assumptions we make make us very targetable for marketing, though. So you hear about, oh, it's, uh, it's made in the garment district in New York. Well, the government district in New York is full of sweatshops. Yeah. Uh, okay, it's, it's made in Britain, but there's sweatshops in Birmingham. Um, Italy is another one that, you know, is like, yeah. So, I mean, most of the time we are being conned. It just depends <laughs> how gullible we want to be. That's a, yeah, that's a great sort of reassuring thing. Most of the time, especially everyone on Instagram, most of the time you're being conned. <laughs> Unless, I mean, you take the time to actually seek out the brands who show you how they make stuff, say like Dawson's or Tendo or William Lennon or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Or places you can actually visit. I mean, I've been to a few uh, shoe factories now, so I know exactly what they look like, and they've been fine. Um, but again, that's not practical for everyone. That's why. That's why I like reporting these things on the blog because then other people can Google it and say, "How does?" Grenson make their shoes. Oh, look, Nick's been to the factory and reported and there's lots of photos. Oh, it's okay. So that'll be a safe buy. So I think that's about as good as we can get it, unless we want to just trust everyone. And I guess that's the thing is, you know, people like you who do a fair bit of work on it and actually, you know, dig in deep and do those write-ups and things like that are really, really valuable. Um, 
because you know things like that. I think it's you. You were the one who told me about bamboo, you know, and yeah. so things like that. But it's um, you, you got to be a, a fairly invested customer to even do that bit. Uh, and I think the thing that uh, maybe uh, intentionally or not, a lot of brands are pushing is you know another type of coverage through things like Instagram, which is purely based on aesthetics or you know branding, which is like look at it, it looks amazing. You'll look just as cool as that guy. Buy it now, 10% discount. And of course, you've got the guy who always buys Adidas trainers. I mean, it doesn't matter what you tell him, he's always gonna, he's just gonna keep buying them. Yeah. That was a completely random brand name I mentioned there, so I have nothing against them. <laughs> <laughs> but people tend to be very focused. If you want something, you're not gonna hear anything saying anything negative about it. You will want all the confirmation bias you can get. So you'll seek out everyone who agrees with you. Yeah. And say, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, especially, yeah. And I think we have a version of that, which is the forums, which is like, you know, we spoke about that in the past. And it's like, it's basically like a lot of it is just echo chambers. Oh. I mean, the moment you try to present a new or unusual brand or item, like people are not interested, you know, just you really would have to work at it. But if you have a pair of something that everyone recognizes is the standard for good, then oh, amazing, you know, 50 likes in minutes, you know, it's like, yeah. and if you're wondering about buying a certain item, you just visit the forums and you have 25 people telling you excellent choice buy it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is really shame because, you know, especially when you travel, I come across these like uh, in Portugal in particular, I remember in Italy, all these like local producers that make these amazing products, whatever it is, whether it's shoes or whatever, but they're just not interested in appealing to the heritage people. And so they just don't have that recognition. But in terms of production, in terms of value and all these things, they, they've hit all the, you know, the boxes that we probably care about. It's just that, again, in terms of packaging it in a way, they just don't do that bit of it. Similarly, you've got all these amazing German brands, which you'll never know about if you don't read the Heritage Post, because it seems like yeah. it's a closed market. Which is really strange. What are some of what are some of the brands that you like from Germany? Because I have a few as well like that. There, just um, at the moment, given that my pack of my pile of heritage shoes is in the basement, I can remember a big fat zero of them. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I keep I keep seeing them and I keep recognizing the names, but uh, I can't remember them now. Because things like Schieser, for example, Schieser or Mass Mass Bischwanen, I'm probably butchering both of those names, but they're, they're you know, they, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic products and really reasonably priced, depending on you know when you get it. And you know, and it just makes me wonder if there were to be a little bit heavier with some of the the selling bits, whether it would just be that much more popular and the price would go up. So I don't want to tell too many people about it. I, I suspect at least uh, Mertzbees Farman that they probably don't have a huge production capacity. Yeah. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if they were running about at the level where they can run. So. Uh, with the constraint in the supplies, they can probably charge a bit more and they're probably quite happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of the loop wheel production that, you know, what is it, each machine can make 20 a day or something silly like that. I mean, what a silly idea to try to run a big scale business <laughs> using that stuff. But, you know, it's a great product, so I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've just about run out of time now, uh, Ducky. So I think we should uh, wind up. Uh, any final thoughts? Mm, no, just been fun to geek out with you, Nick. And yep. uh, whenever you have a new delivery, please send me a picture of it, <laughs> and I'll do the same. And we'll enable each other.
to That's spend a lot of money on stuff that we don't need, but that we ultimately love. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, for anyone who uh, joined us late, I'll be uh, making this chat available on uh, my Instagram TV uh, within an hour or so. And uh, maybe we'll have a topic next week again, Ducky? Oh, yeah, sure. Drop me a message. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, thanks for now, everyone. And uh, stay cool. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay sane. <laughs> that's all for this episode of gomology if you enjoyed this please do subscribe and i would really appreciate a good rating thanks for listening in and see you next time